Song of Solomon chapter 3. If you think the Bible's boring, you don't know about the Song of Solomon, all right? Um, I want to just warn you that next week, next week we're going to be talking about the honeymoon graphically because I'm going to read the Bible. And at some point next week, it will be so graphic in, in, their, in the bedroom, in the honeymoon, there will be a time in next week's service where every one of you that have the Bible in your hand will go, is this the, yeah, it's in the Bible, okay? So just a warning, it's at least PG-13. All right, but today we're going to talk about the actual, the wedding event itself. So we're going to pick it up in Song of Solomon, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. It says, this is the woman talking. She says, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? First and foremost, the thing about a God-glorifying wedding day is that she knows that this is a divine appointment. This is not just a legal event. Do you know that in the state of Florida that any notary public can marry you? Did you know that? You can go get your marriage license. You have to wait three days, and then you could go to the bank or Publix or your lawyer or anywhere, and you could get married there. And that's fine as far as legalities go. But the Bible thinks that the wedding day is a divine appointment. All throughout um, the early years of Israel, they were led around by God in the form of a pillar of smoke. And so what she's saying is that this day, this wedding day, is a God-ordained event. And so... Uh, Solomon and his whole crew, this is the wedding processional. They are showing up. It says, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. So, fellas, shower well before you get married. Okay, don't want to stink when you're ready today. Verse 7. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. This does not mean that his friends are dogs, okay? A litter is like an old school word for that little couch thing. Maybe you've seen it in movies where, like, people are carrying it on their shoulders on posts, and the king sits up in, like, this chariot with no wheels and no horses because his boys are the horses, okay? That's how that works. And so this is his ride. Solomon's showing up to his wedding day and his ride. And so it says, Behold, it is the litter of, or the ride of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, and all of them wearing swords and expert in war, and each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. Solomon shows up to his wedding, and he's got 60 mighty men of Israel with sword in hand saying, We've got your back. Let me ask you a question, married people. <clears throat> Who do you have in your world fighting for you and your marriage? Because if you don't have some people that have your back, that are ready to fight for your marriage, you are in trouble. And we have tried to make it so simple, not necessarily easy, but so simple here at the Church of 1122. At the end of every single service, I try to point every single one of you to the Connect Center so you can get connected with some people that will fight for your marriage. Because we live in a world that does not help people stay married. You know this. And so you need to have some people surrounding you that are helping you stay married. In fact, Every wedding I do, um, you know, and again, I probably do 50, 60, 70 weddings a year, something like that. You know why? Because when you teach that, that sex before marriage is a sin, then all the people want to get married. You know, like, okay, well, sign me up so I can do that other part, all right? So I do a lot of weddings, praise the Lord. It's very biblical. <clears throat> and so when the people get in there, I do the dearly beloved, and then we do what's called the question of intent, where I ask the, the husband-to-be, I go, hey, bro, do you take her and he says, I do. And then I ask her, do you take him? And then she says, I do. And then I always step away from the couple and I look at the crowd and say, hey, listen, in a world that does not help people stay married, will you do your part to love and to pray for and encourage this man and woman to fulfill their marital covenant till death do us part? If not, you are uninvited to the reception and I don't let them go. But if you're going to do your part, like the mighty men of Israel with sword in hand ready to get these people's back, then say we do. And the whole crowd goes, we do. And so 
at the church of 1122, we want you to get connected with people that will help you stay married. I have a group of men that I have invited into my life to look out for my marriage. Gretchen has them on speed dial. And so if there's a problem, she, she'll probably text. Because who calls anymore, right? If somebody calls me, I'm like, are you okay? They're like, yeah, well, I'm like, you called. Shouldn't you just text, even less of mercy. But anyway, so she would text these men and say, we need help. And they don't even have to wait on the text. If they perceive that there could be an issue, then they are like the mighty men of Israel that have our backs, sword in hand, ready to attack anything that's attacking us. If your marriage is in trouble, you need you need some people in your life that are helping you stay married. And I know some of you are like, well, look, I don't have time for a disciple group. If your marriage gets in trouble, you'll look back and go, oh, I wish I would have found time for that. And, and I bet I could line up person after person after person whose marriage is on the rocks, and they would say, hey, I speak to you from the future. I would go back and try to get some more people involved in our lives to help us be the husbands and wives God has called us to be. Now, I'm not promising you that your disciple group can fix your marriage. Some of you, you know, you're way beyond repair, but these are people that would walk with you through that. You need some men and women in your life saying, I am fighting for your marriage like these mighty men of Israel. Verse 9, King Solomon made himself a carriage. This is his ride that he shows up to his wedding day in. So he makes himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its post of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple. So Rick James apparently helped him design his (laughs) pimp ride that he shows up to. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. They are going to get married this day, and it is going to be, I mean, it is just going to be an epic wedding. I mean, when the king of Israel gets married, it is going to be a big, big wedding. Your wedding day should be a day of incredible celebration. In fact, you know, Jesus is into weddings. Jesus loves weddings. You know why I know that? The very first miracle that Jesus ever does publicly was at a wedding, For those of you that are new to Bible study, guess what? He showed up at a wedding, and they ran out of wine, and his mama came and said, Jesus, we need more wine, and he took water, and he turned it into wine. So for all you Baptists, what would Jesus do? He was at a party. They ran out of beer, and Jesus makes the beer run. You understand? That's what he does. Sorry, Baptists, to mess you up, but I'm just saying. So Jesus is into into weddings. Now, here's the problem. Again, I do so many weddings, and here's, here's a problem that I see over and over and over and over is that young couples, or hey, I'm at our old yard, couples get together and they spend all of this time, effort, energy on the wedding and very little time getting ready for the marriage. And dude, that wedding is over in like a minute. I mean, just like boom, quick. And everything could go perfect. I mean, the weather could be perfect. The dress could be perfect. All of the groomsmen and the bridesmaids are perfect, and the band is great, and your little triangle sandwiches are awesome, and everything could go right, and you know that that has zero impact on your marriage. And I have done some amazing weddings. I did one yesterday on the lawn of the TPC. I mean, it was pretty snazzy, you know, and they had a little string section, and and it was really pretty, and everybody was pretty, and the crowd was even pretty. I mean, it was great. And I've done some really fancy ones with Ice sculptures. I did one in Mexico one time, all right, a little destination wedding. And Gretchen and I were, were so moved by the Spirit for this married couple or this couple to be married that we went down about four days earlier just to pray over the event, you know, <laughs> make sure everything was set up and the Spirit was there. Um, 
I did one a couple years ago at the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina. This couple rented out the Biltmore. I don't even think you can do that, and they did, all right? This was, I mean, it was epic. She came on like a Budweiser horse on a carriage like that. It was, it was crazy. It was awesome, awesome, awesome. And so I've done these epic, just beautiful $100,000 weddings, and then I've also done some little ghetto weddings where everybody doesn't even dress up, you know what I mean? Just put on some khakis and come on, let's go, and we just stand in somebody's backyard, and those are great too. Uh, in fact, I did a wedding about um, two months ago, and the dude, he was here on Thursday night, he and his wife, and, and his best man was a dog. He said, hey, look, my best friend's my dog, and so the dog's going to be the ring bearer, and he's going to bring the ring in. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me, dude. All right, it's your wedding, you know. And so sure enough, everybody processes in, and then here comes the dog right down the aisle with the ring on his back, sits right there next to me as the best-behaved person in the whole wedding party, all right? Perfect. <laughs> now, here's what's crazy. All of that, whether you have a band or, you know, whatever, or, or it's just three of us standing on the beach, has zero impact on the kind of marriage that you're going to have. Zero. You know why? <laughs> You know why I know this, that you can have a crappy wedding and have an incredible marriage? Because that's my story. I told you, I've kind of walked you through how, you know, my story with, with Gretchen and how we got to be where we are. And so, um, so I, when I finally could scrape up enough money to buy a ring, I proposed. She said yes, and we scheduled our wedding for February the 26th, the year 2000, which is really great to get married in 2000. So now I know how many years we've been married always just by what year it is. <laughs> I would highly suggest it if you could figure that out, okay? And so what we did is, so we're married, uh, we're scheduled to be married February 26th, and uh, I bought a house on February the 24th, and I was a youth pastor, so on the 25th, we had this uh, youth event, and the youth event was move Pastor Joby's stuff out of his apartment into his new house, all right? Now, we prayed first to make it like a real church thing, and then... So we move all my stuff in. We get Gretchen's stuff out of her apartment, move it into our new house. We leave, leave her uh, just mattresses on the floor and enough stuff to get ready for the wedding. That's all she had in her place. So about 2 a.m. on the 26th, the Saturday we're supposed to get married. We're supposed to get married, I think, at 2 p.m. on that Saturday. About 2 a.m., she comes walking in the back door of our new home. It's just mine at that point and hers yet. And she says, I don't feel good, okay? I'm laying on the couch because when we moved all our stuff in, we didn't even set any rooms up because we were going to go on our honeymoon to Jamaica immediately following the wedding. Like, I think we were driving out, you know, going to the airport that night kind of thing. And so <clears throat> our plan was we were going to fix the house up when we got home from that. And so I don't know about you, but, but some of you, when you wake up, like when you're just middle of the night, wake up, you just wake up all the way awake. Like, how, how can I serve you? All right. And um, that is not me at all. I have kind of stages of dehibernation. You know, I kind of like, no, I need sleepy. You know, I just can't like focus on what's going on. So she's standing in my kitchen, and in my house, you can see the whole house from any point in the house, right? So there she is. She's standing in my kitchen, and, and she goes, I don't feel good. And so in my empathy and sympathy and just tender, loving, serving heart, I was like, all right, well, you know, it's probably nerves, just, and I went back to sleep. And then in just a second, I hear her going to the bathroom, and I hear, splash, and then boom, I'm awake. I go, uh-oh. And Gretchen's sick. Like, not just I got a little nerve sick, but like the 24-hour, just, bah, you know, both directions, <laughs> mission trip sick. You know what I'm saying? Like dehydrated, can't get it, just not awesome. And I think, oh, no. Now, we're, we're talking about 2.30 a.m. We're supposed to get married 12 hours later. So I'm like, all right, you lay on the love seat. I'll, when the world wakes up, we'll figure something out. About 6 a.m., I get up, start calling doctors from our church and her mom. 
about every half hour on the half hour all night long, she's been getting up, going to the bathroom, being sick, sick, sick. Not awesome. On her wedding day. So I called her mom. Her mom lived about an hour away. Her mom's awesome. I was like, Miss Nicely, you got to come help. We have a problem. So she drives in. A doctor in our church opens up his office early for us that Saturday morning. I carry Gretchen into the doctor's office and literally carry her. And she's already kind of little and light, but she was even lighter, right? And so I carry her in, sit her on the little bed thing. And, and the doctor says, I can give you something that will make this stop, but you might go unconscious. And, and <laughs> now, you know how you are when you're like, I don't care. Cut my legs off. I don't need legs. Just stop this from happening because I don't care. I'll do anything. That's how I am. And so he gives her this big old shot. Um, and then sure enough, I put her back in the car and she doesn't get sick anymore, but she is unconscious. And so I take her to her apartment. Her mom meets me there. I carry her up. I put her on her mattress. That's all that's left in her place. And her mom says, I've got this. You go get ready. Because, you know, you got all this stuff that you got to do. And uh, I'm like, all right. So I, I head out to my place and I begin to alert everybody of what's going on, you know, at the church and all of that. And so her mom lets her sleep for a few hours and then tries to get her up to, to start getting her ready for her wedding day. Puts her in the shower, and while she's in the shower, right about the point she gets all the shampoo nice and sudsy in her hair, she gets sick again, not sick, sick, but like faints from probably dehydration and passes out in the shower. So her mom scoops her up, puts her back in her bed, and just with the shampoo still in her hair, she sleeps for about another hour just letting the shampoo kind of harden and stiffen in her hair. Okay, that's about one o'clock. So at two o'clock, when the wedding is supposed to start, the church is packed. I was on staff at the church, and I think most people in that town just couldn't believe I was actually getting married and want to see it for real life. So we had 700 people show up to our wedding. The church held 700 people. So the whole, every seat was a pew, but you know, it was all just packed in there. And so it was supposed to start at two, the place is full. Gretchen arrives at the church at about two o'clock in sweatpants and dry shampoo head, right? And so they take her... They take her to the church library, and a bunch of women from the church, like hairstylists and makeup artists, they descend on her like a NASCAR pit crew, you know, just (laughs) trying to work on stuff. So the pastor of the church and I, we get up, we walk up in front of everybody and say, hey, listen, there's a little change of plans, all right? This isn't Runaway Bride. Gretchen's here, but she's been sick all night. We're going to, it's happening today. And, uh, and luckily, we were broke, so we couldn't afford, like, a real reception. I've been to your receptions, and they're real nice, okay? Well, ours, we were just eating, we were just doing um, punch and those little, like, wedding wieners over in the, in the gym of the church. It was super ghetto, but we didn't have any money, you know? Just make peanut butter and jelly and cut them into squares and put a toothpick in them, and then they're fancy, right? And so that's what we were doing. <clears throat> so we moved 700 people to the gym while Gretchen, to give her an extra hour to get ready. And every single person just came up to me and just, they just were like, I'm so sorry. Well, thanks. God bless your ministry too, all right? That, that was our wedding day. And then we had to make some decisions like, all right, how are we going to do this? Because Gretchen feels, I mean, she's totally wiped out. You've been there before with the 24-hour bug. And so at one point we thought we might just have to start on stage and let the rest of the world walk down the aisle and get in their seats. And then she said, no, I think I can go down the aisle, but they thought maybe in a wheelchair, not every bride's dream. Let me just point that out. <clears throat> then finally, she, she 
got okay enough where her mom and dad walked her down the aisle, both holding up her arms. And some people, you know, they thought, oh, what a beautiful symbol. It was not symbolic of anything except don't fall down. Then they bring her, and, and, and then the other thing, in the wedding itself, in the ceremony itself, we cut everything. Like, we didn't repeat vows. It was just, we've got to get this thing done quickly. We had a couple people sing, and we let them do that first, you know, because we invited them to come and sing. And then it was just like, do you? Yes. Do you? Yes. Kiss your bride. Amen. Booyah. You're married. But we're out. And the whole time we're standing there holding hands, I just remember thinking, I am in, like, direct line <laughs> of this. I might have to, at any moment, go matrix, like, but that didn't happen. I'm not thinking about marriage. I don't know what we're thinking. I'm just thinking, this is crazy. All right, so then we walk out of the church, back down the aisle, everybody cheers, and we go to reception part two, and at that point, Gretchen's wife, we do put her in a wheelchair, wheel on in to our reception. Um, we cut the cake for a picture, but she couldn't eat it because she was afraid she'd get sick. That, that was our wedding experience. Then, we, that's over, you know? And it's time to go and live happily ever after. And so we, uh, my students had demolished my car, so I couldn't even drive it. So we get in a borrowed car, go back to our new house that, that now we live in, and it's demolished because we hadn't really moved in yet, just stuff. I got to move around some stuff. I put down some mattresses. She lays down. She falls asleep in her wedding dress. I fall asleep next to her, wake up at, a, I don't know, in that evening, and then realize I got no cable. I've got no internet. I've got no uh, nothing we got to go somewhere. I mean, what am I going to do? Just sit in this empty house, right, with a bunch of junk everywhere. So I call up a hotel and get a honeymoon suite, scoop Gretchen up, said, hey, we're going to uh, go stay at the hotel row. And I came. So we go in, get our room. We sit down. It has like a little, a little extra little place to sit. And we sit down in there. And she says, oh, I think, I think I'm ready to try some toast. And I think, all right, baby, we're rallying, okay? So I get the room service. The toast comes. She eats a little toast. It doesn't sit super awesome, and so she's like, I just need to lay down. She lays down, says, I don't feel good, goes to sleep, and she's asleep. And on my wedding night, there I am, laying in the bed next to the hottest chick I've ever been this close to in real life, okay? And she is asleep, feeling terrible. And I just am like, Lord, you are hilarious, all right? (laughs) And so... Turn on the TV in the room, and the movie The Sixth Sense is on. And I watch The Sixth Sense, and to this day, I hate that movie. Tell you all that to tell you this. Horrible wedding day. Horrible. Couldn't get any worse. We're not perfect, but you want my marriage. I mean, the way we've grown together, the friendship that we have, the just mutual submission and commitment and love and de- not perfect, man. Sometimes you can see us fight and be like, Ew. but I'm telling you, we, it's worth fighting for that we are committed and devoted and love and it's ooey gooey, hand holdy. I love what just freak our kids out, kind of love each other marriage. And so it's what you want. Now, my advice to you, for those of you that are getting married is this, um, guys, here's what I would tell you. The wedding day is the day that she, your, your bride-to-be, she's been dreaming of this day her entire life, okay? She got her first wedding magazine when she was four years old, and she knows exactly how it wants to go. And so the best, just know this, your wedding day is not about you at all. It's all about her. Get over it, all right? And if you think it's about you, come on, cowboy. I don't know what you're into. But um, so here's my advice to you, because she's been dreaming of this day forever. So 
Just stand where she says stand, wear what she says wear, and just say what she says say. And if you do that, you'll make her the happiest girl on the planet that day. Amen? All right. Now, the wedding night, girls. He's been dreaming of this his whole life. All right? So just stand where he says stand, wear what he says wear, say what he says say, and you'll make him the happiest man on the planet. All right. So the wedding itself... The wedding itself, again, you can have any kind of wedding, and it doesn't really predict the kind of marriage you'll have. But I will say this. The wedding itself, it is a ceremony to celebrate what your marriage ought to be. Because a real wedding ceremony, a God-honoring wedding ceremony, is a celebration of covenantal love. That what you do when you say, I promise, or I vow, till death do us part, is you're making a promise, a covenant, a vow. And that's what a wedding is supposed to be. Every single one of you, if you're married, you promise some stuff. I mean, you really promise. You said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be your lawfully wedded husband, and here's what I vow or I promise. I promise to love you in, in the good times and the bad, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, in sickness and health. Like, no matter what the conditions around us change into, my love for you is not going to change. That, that's what you promised. That's what I promised. And then your, your bride promised the same thing back to you. Okay, that's cool because I'm going to promise the same thing. I'm going to love, honor, respect you no matter what. No matter what. The problem is, is that when you walked up into that altar to, to actually get married, <clears throat> you were thinking covenant. But the moment, I mean the moment they pronounce you husband and wife and you walk out the back of the church or wherever you get married, the moment that happens, what begins to happen in your mind, and I know you don't mean to, and it's not even really your fault, and I don't care how much you love Jesus and read your Bible and how many James Dobson focus on the family books you read about marriage, that we all begin to shift mentally from covenant to I promise no matter what to contract. Well, you ought to because you're the wife. And when you begin to move from the covenant of marriage to a contractual understanding of one another, the first thing that will begin to happen is is intimacy leaves the room. Unconditional love leaves the room. Just random acts of service and love and kindness for one another leave. An attitude of gratitude and thankfulness for one another begins to leave. And the way this begins to happen is when you walk up the aisle to get married, you walk into your marriage with legitimate hopes and desires and dreams. And they are legit. I mean, you've been thinking about what your marriage could be like one day. And that's fine, because you can't really dream anybody else's dreams but your own. So that's, that's all good and fine, all right? But when you begin to take those legitimate hopes and wishes and desires and dreams, and, and after you get married, you begin to take them from, from this kind of dream wish bucket and begin to put them in this expectation bucket, then, the, then you're moving from covenant to contract. And when you move from covenant to contract, what you do is you create a debt-debtor relationship with your spouse. A debt-debtor relationship. And we've all got contracts, right? Everybody's got a cell phone contract. Do you feel unconditional love from your cell phone provider? I mean, when is the last time you got a handwritten love letter from Verizon? Dear Mr. Martin, 
we would just like to give you a heartfelt thank you for paying your bill on time every time, regardless of how many phone calls we've dropped for you. No. In fact, when's the only time you do get personal communication from your cell phone provider? If you break the contract, they will call you, even if your phone doesn't work anymore. It works for them. You'd be like, hey, a real person? That's weird, because when I call you, I can't get a real person. But when you need me, a real person calls. You see how that works? It's because you have a debt-debtor relationship, and rightfully so, because you're entering into a contract. If they don't provide for you service, then you don't have to pay them. And if you don't pay, for, pay them, they will not provide service for you. That works great for your cell phone. It will kill your marriage. It'll kill it, because you enter into this debt-debtor relationship. Here's an example. Most nights of the week, Gretchen cooks for us at home, okay, for all of us. And, it, and, you know, and we try to do the, we're only eating what I'm cooking, but then that never works out. And it's corn dogs for the kids, and I eat whatever. Now, here's the thing. Is that a legitimate desire on my part to eat? Yeah, that's pretty legit, right? And is it a blessing for me? Oh, my goodness, it's a great deal to be able to walk in my house after a long day of work and go, ooh, something smells awesome. And my wife, she's a stay-at-home mom, so that has a lot to do with it. And then she also, she's a good cook. And, and so that's legit. Now, if I, if I expect it, if I expect dinner on the table when I get home, even if I expect it, regardless of why I expect it, because that's what my mama did or that's what I saw on Leave it to Beaver or why, it doesn't even matter why. But if that is the expectation, do you understand that it's a debt-debtor relationship? And when I walk into the door, I can't even appreciate it because what my wife has done is she's only worked her way back up to zero, to par. And you'll find yourself saying something like, well, that's what she ought to do because she's the wife, isn't she? Same thing's true with you, ladies. If you expect your husband to fill in the plank because he's the husband, do you see how that chases all of the unconditional love and intimacy and grace out of it? As opposed to if I pull up into the driveway and I go, okay, God's command on me is for me to love my wife like Christ loved the church and give myself up for her. And I'm going to walk into this door of this house and, and, it's, and it's, it's second shift for me. I know I've been working all day, but now I'm in second shift and I need to serve her and do whatever it is that she needs to do for me. And I don't expect dinner. I can cook dinner. I'm a grown man. I cooked dinner sort of when I was, you know, in college and stuff. If you can consider ramen noodles and hot dogs dinner, but I can do that. And so if I walk in with that kind of no expectation, but covenant, I made a covenant to love her with or without dinner. If I walk in and then I smell dinner, then what happens? <gasps> Thank you. Thank you. Not only is it true on my end, but it's also true on her end. If, if she feels this expectation to cook dinner, do you realize that she, I'm, I'm robbing her of the opportunity of actually putting love into action for my family because now it's just duty. As opposed to, I love you so much, I'm grateful for what you provide for our family, so I wanted to provide dinner for you. And so, if your marriage has, and it shifts, all of our marriages drift towards that kind of expectation, whether you want it to or not. And so, you've got to work really, really hard to keep it at that covenant kind of relationship and not drift into, into that contractual kind of relationship. And because what else will begin to happen if you, if you have those expectations, those ought-tos, is it just, I mean, it just, it just scares away all of that intimacy. And if there's a gap between what you expect and what you experience, that space in the middle is not good. That's pain, that's frustration, that's angst in there. And so what we are called to do is to live up to the promise 
that you've made on the day that you got married, I promise that no matter what, for rich or poor, for better or for worse, regardless of the external conditions, regardless of what you can do for me, this is what I am promising to do as a husband, or this is what I am promising to do as a wife. Now, if your marriage has shifted towards that contractual kind of thing, and there's a lot of expectations and ought to, and you should because you're the husband, and my daddy did, and all that stuff, I can tell you, you don't have a marriage problem. You've got a gospel problem. See, there are actually very few marriage problems. It's usually just people problems, and then people get married. Now you've got two sets of people problems living together, right? And so a gospel-centered marriage understands that we're supposed to love one another out of reverence for Christ, not because that other person is so lovable. Ephesians 5.21 says it this way, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That I'm supposed to make your deal more important than my deal. Not because your deal is more important than my deal, but because Jesus made my deal more important than his deal. And you invite Christ into your marriage, and that's how you can live out this covenant. You can say, I promise to love you no matter what. Why? What if I get taken advantage of? Well, isn't that how Christ loved you? And so if you've got a marriage problem, I'm telling you, it's a gospel problem. Or think about it this way. When Christ saved you on the cross... Was that a contract or was it a covenant? You see, the Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. In other words, even if, even if you never respond in the appropriate way, Christ decided to go first and love you and die for you. And that's how we, as husbands and wives, are supposed to love each other in the covenant of marriage. Here's the point. I put it in your notes. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. A contract says, if you, like if you do your part, then I'll do my part. But a covenant says, no matter what, I do. And that is a gospel-centered marriage. Again, it's Ephesians 5 to 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That means that you're supposed to be mutually submitted, really good friends, that you care more about the other person than you do yourself, and you can care for them because Christ cares for you so much. And then it says, wives, submit to your own husband. I know that's your favorite verse. I don't even have to repeat the rest of it, right? You love it so much, you got it. You probably have a sweater with it on there, right? So, wives, submit to your own husband as unto the Lord. Why, because he's submittable to? No, no. But because of what Christ has done for you. Then it says, husbands, love your wife because she's lovable, not always, but you're not always lovable either, right? And yet Christ loves you. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's what you promise or vow or covenant to do regardless of the response, regardless of the response. Now, what begins to happen? Is it so easy to talk about right now in church? And like, yeah, that sounds awesome. But as soon as you walk out of here, I mean, as soon as you walk out of here, your legitimate wishes and desires and hopes and dreams for your marriage will begin to shift to expectations, and that takes it out of covenant and into contract. And wives, some of the common expectations that you have are this. And I know you would, well, maybe you would verbalize it this way, but, but at first, when you made that covenant, you said, for rich or for poor, but you now you're thinking, yeah, but... I mean, we moved in this little house, and you know what? You said it was going to be like a, just a four-year starter home, and then the housing market was going to boom, and we are going to be able to sell it, and we're going to make a bunch of money, and then we're going to live in a house bigger than the one I grew up in. And we're still in this little house. 
Now, is that a legitimate desire? Maybe. But even if it is, okay, and it begins to move into the expectation for him to do that, I'm telling you, now you're in a contract. Where I thought you'd make more by now. Because I just want to enjoy nice things. And all my other friends, they're able to enjoy nice things. But I can't really enjoy these nice things. Um, Or some of you, here's the pushback I'll get from from wives. I'll go, I'll hear this. Oh, Pastor Joby, uh, yay for you and Gretchen. But here's what you don't understand. (laughs) I've had my husband on a leash for 24 years. And it's taken me 24 years to train him to get to this point. You should have seen him when we met. I mean, he would have failed a basic hygiene test, okay? And I have taught him how to live indoors and bathe regularly and, you know, better English and which fork to use. And I've taught him all these things. And, I mean, it's 24 years of training. And when he gets it right, I mean, I give him a little more leash, but when he gets it wrong, I have to pull him back in. And if I were to just drop the leash and just say, turn him loose and I'm going to love you no matter what, you have no idea what he's going to run off and do. In fact, he's really grateful for how much I've helped him. Aren't you, honey? Come here. Come here, honey, tell him, tell him, all right? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, am I supposed to say yeah? Uh, Yeah. Now listen, and I know that's what you feel like. You know what it's called? I mean, it is dog training, but it's also called parenting. That's how you parent your kids. You give them very strict guidelines, and as they accomplish those things and earn your trust, you feed them a little more rope until the point that they know how to make the decisions on their own. Okay. Your husband's not looking for another parent. He don't want to marry his mom. And there are times, boy, when you've got that leash tight, it's, he feels like he's married to a parent. And you wonder why the intimacy is not there. And that's not what you promised. That's not what you vowed. Is it risky? Love is very, very, very risky. It's just worth the risk. Don't believe me? Look at the cross. And so, one of the things that you'll need to do is to take those expectations and take them back over here to the desires and drop the expectations. Here's a big one too. I get this call. It's usually an email or a Facebook message. I mean, I get it monthly. And I can always tell what woman is like in a, in a, a BCF, is that what it's called? Yeah. Just a women's Bible study or a Bethmore Bible study or you shop at Lifeway and you listen to Christian radio. I can always tell because I'll get this email that says this. My husband is not the spiritual leader of my house. I need my husband to be the spiritual leader of my house. Okay. First of all, that's not biblical. Okay. The Bible doesn't say that the husband is to be the spiritual leader. What does it say the husband is supposed to be? The head. The head. All right, a good husband on the front row knew that. All the wives are like, I don't know. It's that spiritual leader. That's what Beth Moore said. No, she didn't. She's great. Beth Moore's awesome. But listen, the husband is the head of the whole thing. The spiritual part is one part of that, but that's not the entirety of it. See, most women don't like that headship idea, so they came up with a new evangelical soft cell word. And so, here's the deal. The husband is the head. Just like the president's the president. You get a good one or you get a bad one. They are, they are the president. Get over it. That's who they are. And so, the husband is the head. Whether he be a good leader or a bad leader. And he's not just the leader of the spiritual things. So, you get a lot of Christian women that'll say, I look, I'm not letting you lead in any other area, but you better know more Bible verses than me. If you unpack Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks mostly about husband's headship, there's three things that the head is supposed to do as Christ loved the church. Love, like Christ's love, that means a sacrificial you first love. It's provide and protect, to take responsibility and to protect. That's what it is. And so sometimes I'll dig in with these Christian women and say, tell me a little bit about your husband. Well, I want him to be the spiritual leader. Well, what do you mean? Well, I know the Bible better than him, and he doesn't know how to pray right. And when he sings, he sings like this, and I sing like this. So I'm clearly the spiritual leader. 
But as I dig around, he loves. I mean, he sacrificially loves his wife, and he's a good dad, and he loves his kid, and he's coaching their t-ball, and he's pouring into them, and he provides and he protects. And it's actually that provision and protection that gives her the opportunity to be in 19 women's Bible studies and prayer groups all week so that she can learn more verses than him and then come home and attack him with it. Ladies, if that's you, if your husband is sacrificially loving you, regardless of how many Bible verses he knows, and he loves your kids, and he's providing, and he's protecting, and I mean, he's just like a legit man, but he doesn't know as many Bible verses as you because he's busy working. You should get on your knees, repent, and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for loving me like Christ loved the church and not some Pharisee just memorizing more Bible verses, okay? And in fact, submission is an invitation to lead not a criticism of his current leadership. He is the spiritual leader of the house because he is the head of the whole thing. So here's what you do. You've got to invite him to lead. You've got to lay down the reins and say, hey, you are the head. And then you invite him to lead by doing things like this. I wish he couldn't even hear this right now. So guys, quit paying attention. Listen, wives, you say, hey, baby, will you pray for me? And he's gonna be like, uh, okay. And then say, would you just pray for me about, and you can list some stuff. And when he says, okay, and he walks away, Don't correct him and like, no, 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 you're not doing it right. Come over here and put one hand on my head and one hand up like this and try to use the word sanctification, justification, and glorification. Ready, go. No, no. And then the next day, you say, thank you so much for praying for me. I really felt it. Even if you got to lie a little bit. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is saying that's okay, okay. Thank you for praying for me. It's an invitation to lead. And when he goes, you know what? I did pray for you. Then make out with him. And he'll start going, hey, this leadership thing's pretty cool. <laughs> Do you see the difference? I'm telling you. Um, man, let me beat up on you for a little while. <clears throat> so husbands. Husbands have some common expectations too. There's usually three, all right? Three things that shift into expectation. Okay, there's sex. Okay, there's just one. All right, there's sex. <laughs> Everything else doesn't matter. So... Now, husbands, is that a legit desire? Yeah, sex with your wife? Absolutely, legit desire. You begin to move that legit desire into an expectation. And the one place you never, ever, ever want to chase out the intimacy and the safety and the unconditional love is in the bedroom. Listen, fellas, she is not a a sanctified prostitute just there to service you whenever you want. That, and, And I'm telling you, I've heard this from women in our church that are married to good and godly men, and they'll tell me that they feel like they're on the clock, like it's the NFL draft. Miss Martin, you were on the clock. And there's always this kind of countdown until the next time, and that does not fuel the kind of intimacy that you want in your bedroom that you do your part of pursue and value and speak life into. And if things are healthy... If two healthy people do that, then the the way God has designed us is that they would want to give themselves to one another. But when you begin to when you begin to pile that on as an expectation, well, does she know what I do for her? And then you think, you know what? I took her out on Friday night, just like Joby said. I put on a shirt with buttons, and we bought an expensive steak. So now she owes me. I'm telling you, what you've done is now you're in a contract, and that is not what you promised. But instead, you love her and you serve her without expectation. And every hug is not foreplay. Look, 
I don't know why else you'd be hugging either, okay? I am with you, but I'm just telling you, it communicates to her just, I love you with no strings attached, and, <clears throat> and it's not an expectation. And let me tell you this too, husbands. You better not be walking around quoting wife verses. If you ever have to quote a verse that starts out with wives, then the game is over. Do you understand? I'll quote them and preach them and teach them on your behalf. I will never even quote them in my own home. You read the ones that are written to husbands and wives. You read and memorize and apply the ones that are written to you. And now, husbands, on the spiritual leader stuff, lead, lead in your relationship with the Lord. Again, let me tell you a couple of ways to do it. This is super easy. Number one, if, if you don't feel like the spiritual leader and your wife knows Jesus better than you, that's totally fine. But just do this. Just go up to your wife and say, can I pray for you? And she'll say, okay. And go, okay, how can I pray for you? And she's going to say stuff. And then you hold her hand and you close your eyes and you say, dear God. And then you say that stuff. And then you say, amen. And when she, you say amen, she's, she's going to be crying. She'll be like, oh my, I felt like I was on the, in the garden of Gethsemane. You know, I'm just telling you. That's, cause how, that's just how she was wired. And then also this. When this series is over, when the Song of Solomon series is done, I'm going to do eight-week series on the book of Ephesians. Be here for all eight weeks. If you can't be here, download the podcast. Even if you are here, download those eight podcasts. Don't listen to anything else. Listen to those eight week after week after week after week and so that you can learn the book of Ephesians. The first half of the book of Ephesians is the gospel, the gospel from a heavenly view, the gospel from a personal view, the gospel what happens when you get saved. And then the second half of the book is how the gospel applies to your everyday living at home, at work, in, in, in the way you live each and every day, the gospel in the church. And so regardless of the spiritual question that you're asked, the answer will always be in the book of Ephesians for you. And you, be, you can become an expert in that little section of the Bible. And you can then actually feel equipped, like you know some verses and stuff. Because you don't have to learn the whole thing. But you can get rooted in Ephesians and you can do that. And then Peter says this to husbands. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. You know what that means? That, that word understanding literally means as unto knowledge. That means we are supposed to become students of our wives. Students of our wives. You know how you know all that stuff about your favorite football team and it's really irrelevant? You're supposed to begin to study her like you know where Blake Bortles played Pee Wee and what his passing rating was then, okay? You're supposed to learn to get to know her, what she wants, what she desires, like you know your own self. You know how you're driving down the street in your truck and you get thirsty and nobody had to tell you you were thirsty? Like you just knew it. Like, well, I know that I'm thirsty. You got to know her that way. And you know how you, what you do when you know that you're thirsty? You do what it takes to take care of that want and need. You pull your truck over and you get you something to drink and you're right every single time. Right? The Bible says you're supposed to become a student of her and begin to serve her wants and needs like you've learned to take care of your own wants and needs. So it says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. That just means you can beat her in an arm wrestling contest, okay? And if not... Seriously, boys, work out, all right? <laughs> Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. That that's our call. So, now, if after you take those expectations and you put them back over here and there's just a legitimate wish bucket, you've got to understand this, that your spouse will not be able to meet all of your hopes and dreams and desires. And so what do you do? What do you do? Well, the first thing that you need to do is you need to confess 
and repent to your spouse when those legitimate desires have become expectations. I mean, as I was, as I was getting ready for this message, it occurred to me, I can't remember the last time I did laundry. And if my laundry's not done, without thinking about it, I mean, I can just, I can just in a minute go, well, why aren't my shirts ready? And that, that legitimate desire to wear clean clothes it becomes an expectation of my wife. And I, have to, I need to go to her and say, hey, I'm sorry. And in fact, I need to be really, really thankful that I have clean clothes to preach in every week because of you. So sometimes the first thing that you have to do is confess and repent. I'm sorry, I've moved this desire into an expectation and I know you felt the pressure. And I just want you to know that pressure's off. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, is that you begin to peel back your heart a little bit and share the appropriate desires and wishes and hopes and dreams with your spouse. Now, you can't share them all, but you share the ones that you know they can do something about. Because here's what happens. When people that love each other are open and vulnerable and transparent and say, okay, take a look into my heart. This is some things that are important to me and some things that that I want you to know about me. Now, I love you regardless, but what begins to happen is that people that love one another begin to partner together to accomplish those things for one another. So a big part of the reason Gretchen is a stay-at-home mom is because 10 years ago, she began to peel back the curtains of her heart a little bit and say, hey, this is how I was wired, and this is the direction I want to go. And we didn't get there overnight. It took us a decade to get there, but we partnered up as a team to be able to accomplish that. Now, just a warning on that, you only share with your spouse the things that they could do something about. Do you realize that, like, this would not have been helpful if Gretchen said, hey, listen, I, I listened to your sermon. I just want to be open and honest. Since I was a little girl, I've just always wanted to marry like a really tall guy, like maybe 6'5 or taller. Well, what am I going to do with that? I got to kill McCarthy and all the tall guys in our church because of my insecurity, right? I can't do anything about that. So what do you do with those things that your spouse can't do anything about? You cast all your cares upon Jesus because he cares for you. You got to know that his grace is sufficient for you, that he is more than enough. Now, I get this question all the time. How do I know when it's time to get married? But typically, people ask it in the wrong way. They, they typically say, how do I know if he or she's the one? Well, really, the question is, are you the one? You are ready to get married when you, are, when you feel like you can make the vow or the promise to be the husband or to be the wife that you're going to promise to be. It actually has very little to do with the other person. It has everything to do with you. Do you, are you ready to make that promise that no matter what, for better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, no matter what, here's what I promise. And when you're ready to make a promise to enter that covenant, then you're ready to get married. Um, I had a couple come to me a month or so ago, six weeks or something, and they said they're ready to get married and... Uh, their names are Joe and Tiffany, and they, go to, they attend our church, and they love Jesus, and we do our little premarital counseling thing. And, and, uh, and I said, sure, we'll, you know, we'll get, we'll, I'll do your wedding. I'll be happy to. And, and so it's the day of the wedding, and it's a beach wedding. And uh, anytime I have a beach wedding, which I do a ton of beach weddings, and they're cool, I get up in the morning, and I just check the weather report to see what's happening. And sure enough, they were supposed to get married in the evening, uh, which is always dangerous, right? Beach wedding in the evening in the spring in Florida, it, you know. Doesn't always work out. And so there are these huge, like, thunderstorm cells kind of moving in and around Jacksonville that day. 
And so their wedding is down in just south of St. Augustine, <clears throat> out on the beach, and they've got, this, uh, they've got this beach house rented where the reception and all that is. And so I show up, and the wedding party's all there, and, and we decide, all right, this is happening. We are gonna, we're going to do this wedding. And so I, I do my deal. I walk out there, you know, and dearly beloved, we were gathered here inside of God, do my deal, and I can see the thunderstorm coming. I mean, it is on its way. And the crowd's there, and it's a pretty big crowd, especially for a beach wedding, right? And, um, and I go, and I take my place, and, and then the bridesmaids all coming in, you know, and they always look so goofy, thinking anybody's looking at them. And the, the, the bride always dresses them in, like, they look like Easter eggs, right? Because I think, I think the bride's like, I'm going to dress them and look ridiculous. So everybody will be like, wow, the bride looks amazing. I think that's part of the thing. And then I always lean over to the groom, and I say, are you nervous? And he's like, no, I'm not nervous. And I say, well, you ought to be, because this is the biggest day of your life, all right? And then I tell all the groomsmen, just remember, lock your knees and hold your breath. Because I just want one of them to just, just take a header, right? And then as I'm going through my deal every time, if I can get the guy to get choked up, then I will just, I will just leave what I'm talking about in the ceremony, and I will just try to tear him down until he just, one time. That's what I go for, all right? I want him to suck his lip into the back of his throat once, or just a big snort, you know, once. That's my goal. And it's always the guy. The bigger, tougher the guy, the more he cries. And so when I get home, even Gretchen's like, did you get him? I'm like, oh, I got him. All right, there you go. <laughs> so we all get down there, and, and we start, dearly beloved, and then I can see the storm coming. You know how when you're out on the beach and you see those just thunderstorms coming at you, and it is coming at us? And I mean, there's some big old streaks of lightning and stuff, and we're all there, and there's this little gazebo thing that they built. It's really pretty, and the, the little band people are playing over there. And so... Joe's standing here with me, and Tiffany makes her way down, and, and I do the, the question of intent. Are you ready? Yeah. Do you want to take him? Yeah, Dad. Who's giving her away? Dad. And then, and then I mean, you can see it coming. So I just close up the notebook and say, hey, listen, this one's going to be a fast one, okay? And I do a real quick explanation of what marriage is. I mean, super-duper fast. And then we get the rings out, and, and Joe says his vows, and Tiffany says her vows, and I mean, about the time they say, I do, I mean, there's a lightning strike, bam! I think it was just Jesus going, hallelujah, right? But, and then the rain starts falling. And so I look at her and go, hey, we're going to cut the unity cross, okay? Because I love Jesus, but I didn't really want to be face-to-face with him like that day. <laughs> Big old fat raindrops are coming. And the unity cross is this thing, it's really cool. It's kind of a new tradition where um, you take a big wooden cross that represents the dude and this little like swirly cross that represents the girl and, they, and, it, and it represents how two become one like we talked about last week. And so um, I said, you may kiss your bride, they kiss, we, I announce them and then everybody just runs for the house. And so I run into the, to the house where the reception's gonna be and, and I track them down and say, hey, that's great, it'll be a great wedding sort of one day, you know, about how it rained real bad on your wedding day. But, and then Tiffany says, I really would love to be able to do the unity cross one day. And so I, th- I was trying to think through that and thought, oh, I know, um, I'm preaching on the wedding in our Song of Solomon series in a few weeks, so why don't you guys just finish your marriage, your wedding ceremony in our service? So this morning we have Joe and Tiffany right here on the front row, so I'd like to invite them to come on up. Isn't this cool? It's nice and dry, and so hold hands and look at one another. And we'll pick it up from right where we left off. Joe and Tiffany, you will now take part in the assembly of the unity cross as it represents how two become one. As Joe places the outer cross in the wood base, it represents how God created the man. Bold and strong, the defender and protector of his wife and his family. 
And the book of Ephesians reminds husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, totally and completely giving himself for her. And then, Tiffany, you will place the more intricate cross inside the protection of Joe's cross. And it represents how, in Genesis, God created the woman from the man. Beautiful and multifaceted. And the two crosses come together to make one cross. And it represents how the two of you have become one. And the cross is held together by three golden pegs that represent the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And always remember what God has brought together, let no man take apart. Let this unity cross be a daily reminder of your wedding day and the covenant that you both have made. Go ahead. Look at each other some more. <clears throat> the love that comes out of this sort of unity, I believe, is best described by Ruth's words to Naomi in the Old Testament. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you, for wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Joe and Tiffany, in Christ, the two of you have become one. And now, by the power vested in me by Almighty God in the state of Florida, I have already pronounced you husband and wife, but Joe, you may kiss your bride some more. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. and Mrs. Joe Straw. Yay! <clears throat> um, so like I've said, I, I've, did, I've done like, I don't know, I do 50 or 60 weddings a year. Part of the reason I do them, I'm, I'm, I'm counseled by lead pastors of large churches that I should not quit doing them now. But there's several reasons uh, that I continue to. One is so I can get to know people like Joe and Tiffany. Because in this kind of environment, I have a really hard time getting to know everybody. And so it gives me an opportunity to sit down one-on-one, especially with young, mostly young couples at, at the most important hour of their life, right? And so I want to be there for that. And then secondly, almost every Saturday, it reminds me of the vow. I think I'm a better husband because I stand in the altar with a man and his wife and they're making this promise till death do us part. And it reminds me of Proverbs chapter five. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times. Let me read that one again. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The Bible says, husbands, that you should rejoice in the wife of your youth and the buzz of your marriage should never wear off. That you should be intoxicated with her always. And so I love to do weddings because it reminds me of the vow. It reminds me when I'm standing there eyeball to eyeball on February the 26th, 2000 with Gretchen Martin saying, baby, I promise you, I promise you. No matter what happens, if you're sick like this all the days for the rest of your life, well, in sickness or in health, I promise, till death do us part, I promise to love you. And so the way that we're going to close this service is hopefully a reminder of you married folks. Listen, fellas, you still have it in you, okay? 
you still have it in you. I want you to remember and rejoice in the wife of your youth. To remember that day where you stood in that altar and you made that promise and you meant it with every fiber of your being. And if you're not holding her hand yet, now's your cue to reach over and grab her hand. And the way we're going to end is a little bit different. We typically respond by all singing together. But I don't want all us to sing because we'll, we'll mess this song up. We only need one singer on this one. And it's going to be Ben because we can't sing like he can, okay? And I want you to reach over and grab your wife by the hand. And uh, the band and Pastor Ben are going to sing a song by Michael W. Smith called Forever Yours. And it's just a reminder of the vow that you have made. And let me say this too. I know some of you fought on the way over here. And, I mean, really good. There's no fight like a good Sunday morning on the way to church fight, is there? And you, you're just thinking, oh, I'm glad we decided to sit together during service. This, that would have been awkward, okay? And some of you are thinking, yeah, but my marriage is dead. Can I just tell you that the whole point of Christianity is that God's into raising dead things. Like he raised his son from the dead. He'll raise us from the dead. He can raise your marriage from the dead. So maybe if it's just by faith that you reach out and you grab a hand. And you just, just remember and rejoice in the wife of your youth. If you're not married, could you just pray for the married people in our church? It'd be great for you and our church and this city and everybody involved if the marriages at the church of 1122 were really, really, really strong. So hold her hand. Let me pray. And then Ben's going to sing. Your Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that, that we can love because you first loved us. God, I pray for every marriage in here. Lord, I pray. Pray like crazy. For the, for the strong marriages, the good and godly, fruitful marriages. Lord, we thank you for that blessing and those models that we have to look at. God, I pray for the struggling marriages. Lord, I pray that they would get the gospel right so that they would know how to love each other as you have loved us. God, I thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the blood of Jesus Christ, and the love of a heavenly Father, God, that we can love one another as you have loved us. And that, God, nothing but death would part us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.